you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. It is very important that we know the God we worship. It is also imperative that we discern how God defines himself in his word. If we do not take the time to know our God, we will never know ourselves. We might think we can never know God. When we really think about God, we can see some apparent tension. How can we say, for instance, that God is simple on the one hand, but also incomprehensible? How can we say that God is separate, but also personal at the same time? These are just some of the instances. Please join us as we seek to answer these questions and many more, and remind ourselves that we are the creatures, and He is the great Creator King. Last time, as you remember, we introduced the concept of the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. And what this simply means for review, incommunicable, as you can imagine, means these are attributes that are distinct to God. These are not things that God shares with man. Communicable attributes are the attributes that God has within himself that he shares with man. And we walk through some of the, or we walk through those attributes as the Belgic Confession lays them out. So as we continue to talk about who the Lord is, last time we talked about God being majestic, he is glorious beyond our our full understanding, he's beyond this world, and we saw how God being outside of this creation but also working in this creation is something that certainly encourages us, that he orders and moves this creation to to his goal. Well, this week we move on to what the Belgic Confession says as incomprehensible. So we hear this and it sounds as if we cannot know God at all. He's completely unknowable. And so this might be something, again, that's intimidating because we might say, well, how do we know if we're coming to the right God or we can even draw near to the right God if he's beyond our comprehension and we can never really know him? So when we use this language of incomprehensible, are we saying that God is truly beyond our comprehension, beyond our reach, and saying that we can never really know God or truly know about God because he is so abstract, so distant, and here we are as mere mortals. And so we're going to divide this into two simple points. How is God incomprehensible, like we did last time, or basically we kind of walk through what the Belgic Confession is saying, sort of introduce this concept and talk a little bit about Acts 17 and then go into more how this encourages us and how Paul takes the incomprehensibility of God and basically applies it and shows the beauty of God working in this creation. So let's begin by talking about God being incomprehensible. So how is God incomprehensible? When we make this declaration, as I've already said, it sounds as if we cannot know or perceive God. That it sounds as if God is is so abstract, so distant, so foreign, that we don't have a chance in ever coming to know him. In fact, when we look in a dictionary, Merriam-Webster, and we look at what it says about incomprehensibility, it means impossible to understand. So think about those, that implication in the Belgic Confession saying this, and again, I'm not here taking an exception to what the Belgic Confession says. I'm not saying I have a problem with it. I actually think this is something helpful. And so how can I say that? Because it certainly does sound as if there's a problem, doesn't it? At least on the surface. 
Because if God is incomprehensible, how can we know that we can be saved? Because it would mean that we would know nothing and if we really want to say that God is incomprehensible, this, this becomes a, a problem in Scripture, or, or at least superficially, outwardly on the surface, because the Apostle Paul actually exhorts us in Ephesians 5, verse 10, to try to discern what is pleasing unto God. So if we can't know God, how can we discern what's pleasing unto God if we can't really know him? And so clearly when... We speak of this language of incomprehensibility, but we're not really understanding what the Belgic is teaching us, what Reformed theology is teaching us, but it becomes a little more confusing when we look at Calvin. Now, I love Calvin, and uh, when you look at Calvin in Book 1, Chapter 5, again, there's four books in the Institutes. So in Book 1, Chapter 5, Calvin says this statement. Yet in the first place, Wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. Now that's not really a confusing quote, because when we think about what Calvin's saying there, he's saying basically, when you look at a tree, you see God. When you look at a lake, you see God. You look at the mountains, you see God. Now it's not that these mountains bring God down. But what Calvin's basically getting at is where he says other places in the Institutes that this is where we see the work of God. This is where he has left his signature. It's not like he just created the world, spun it up, and then walked away and, and just let it be. And so that's what Calvin's getting at there. Now, if somebody brings this quote to you at the end of chapter 5 in book 1, Calvin concludes this section with this. He says, we confess, of course that it can be said reverently, provided that it proceeds from a reverent mind, that nature is God. Now we stop there and we say, what is Calvin talking about? He's saying nature is God. I mean, this sounds like pantheism, right? That's the belief that God is in everything and that as you go through a proper process, you may come into union with the one and you may truly know the God uh, of, of this world, but this, the God of this world is not abstracted from this world. He's in this world. His energy is in us. And as we know his energy, we come to know him. That's, that's what Calvin sounds like he's saying. Now again, if somebody wants to make Calvin say that, this is where you go back into the quote and you say you're ripping this out of context. That's not what Calvin intends. Because notice how Calvin, even before this, qualifies this. It can be said reverently that it proceeds from a reverent mind, right? So said reverently from a reverent mind. So what he's saying is that if we say nature is God, he's saying, okay, we, we can use that language. But he's saying we have to use this language carefully. And what we need to understand is from a reverent heart, we understand who God is. God isn't abstracted from the creation. Certainly, God is in the creation, right? He created the world. He gives life to the world. He gives life to all men. But with a reverent heart, we also understand that God is outside this world. And so if you put this quote in the context of chapter 5, what Calvin's getting at is that as we come to see God's signature in this creation, we know there is a God who is beyond this creation, a God who is beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension. 
And this is underscored when we go on and conclude this chapter of finishing up this quote, where Calvin says, but because it is a harsh and improper saying, right, nature is God. Since nature is rather the order prescribed by God, it is harmful in such weighty matters, in which special devotion is due to involve God confusedly in the inferior course of his works. Now I grant that's very wordy. That kind of encourages me. Says, well, I think I'm wordy. should be Calvin. But anyway, getting at the point of what Calvin's telling us, it's important. It's, it's rather profound. Again, when, when people say Calvin is a simple thinker or want to say bad things about Calvin, I say go back into the Institutes and really read Calvin. Uh, there's a lot of gems and a lot of things that Calvin says that, that you, you read even like the, just a few lines here. I mean, you could go through Scripture and present a whole mess of sermons just on that last section here. But the point of what Calvin is making is this. Calvin's saying if you look at creation and, and we want to just look at creation and say, well, here's the works of God. Sun comes up, therefore there's God. Sun sets, therefore there's God. Now, there's, there's truth in that, right? That's part of God's signature. That's part of what God does. But what Calvin's saying that's rather brilliant is he's saying if we limit our understanding of God just to what we survey in our sight, we're not really going to know the majesty of God, right? We're not going to know who he is in his full glory and who he is as a God who is beyond our comprehension. Because we're going to take these works and try and reason from these works who God is. And Calvin's saying that's, that's not going to give us a full picture of God. We, we will not be in a place of saying, what a God who is so beyond our comprehension as mere mortals. And you say, well, why is this relevant? Well, my response to that is, read the book of Job. What's going on there in the long dialogues when you read this book? What's well, going on with the counselors in Job, looking at what they've perceived in this world by the works of God, and then trying to deduce who God is from his works? Well, God meets with Job, and God explains to Job and lays out that his works are representative of who he is as a God who is incomprehensible, a God who is beyond man, a God who is more sovereign and glorious than we can imagine. And Job and the counselors have limited God to these little categories and these little boxes and trying to discern some works from God without truly knowing who God is. And that's what Calvin is fundamentally cautioning us. And he's saying if if we just look at the works, if we just look at the creation, certainly God leaves his signature. We, we watch the sun go up and down, hopefully as Christians. We, we do take moments and say, wow, praise God that he keeps ordering this creation. You know, we hear the birds, praise God that he continues to care for this creation. We, we watch his provision, say, thank God that he doesn't just leave this world in, in a random place. So hopefully we, we do see that as Calvin's point. But he's saying, let's not just stop there and say that it's only what we see in the works that we know God exists. And so as we go on and say, well then, what, what is the real significance of this in saying that God is incomprehensible? Well, what we want to say that God is incomprehensible is we don't want to say that we cannot know God. That's Calvin's point as well, isn't it? That's the Reformer's point. 
Uh, that's our theological point. We, we can know about God. He, he reveals himself in his word. He declares his nature. And so we know God. But the point is, as mere mortals, we cannot know God exhaustively. And that's where we're put in our place. And that's what the Belgic Confession is getting at. It's not teaching us we can never know God or know about God. It's saying we truly can know God. He's just beyond our full comprehension. We're never going to know him exhaustively. We're never going to understand everything about God. And even in the book of Job, it's always something where I marvel at that with the test between uh, Satan testing Job and seeing if Satan can rip Job out of God's hand. God never comes to Job and says, hey, listen, I got this little wager going on with Satan. Just kind of bear with me, and I'm going to give you more than what you had at the beginning, and it's all going to work out, so let's just kind of work together and partner up. No, God says to Job, do you understand who I am? Gird up your loins like a man. We're going to go wrestle. And he does it two times uh, with Job, and Job finally gets his day in God's court. Again, be careful what you ask for. And that's another reminder we, we take from the book of Job, that he is certainly humble, putting his hand over his mouth and submitting to the living God. We don't know why God does what he does. We don't fully comprehend why God does things in his providence the way he does things in his providence. But what we have to go back to is, what do we know about God? He is good, he's merciful, he's just, he is a God who accomplishes his glory, his, his ends, and he's a God that even in the context of who we are in him, he works all things uh, for our good and for his glory, as the Apostle Paul assures us in Romans 8, verse 28. And so now when, when we think about this, and again, we've talked about Calvin, we've talked about the Belgic Confession, but one of the things in a Reformation that we need to remember is we wanted to go back to the scriptures. What, what are the scriptures fundamentally teaching us? What do we know as God has revealed his word to us? Well, this is where we turn to Acts 17, verse 23. And notice how man fundamentally, or, or intuitively, I guess it's just man understands just instinctively <clears throat> that there is an incomprehensible God. I kind of chuckle again at the Areopagus where they leave Paul around, wandering around in Athens and think, well, what can go wrong? All of a sudden, he finds himself in front of a city court. Uh, so once again, it's just one of those things that cracks me up with the Apostle Paul and who he is. It reminds me he's a man that really just can't sit still, can't really keep his mouth shut, and a man who, who truly does uh, have a conviction that who he is in Christ is something that just drives him continually. I mean, you certainly get that from the Apostle Paul. But when he interacts with the people of Athens, he notes that they have this altar to an unknown God. Now, some people, they try and, well, I wouldn't say necessarily discredit it, so are conservative scholars who also believe this, but some say that this might be some grave that was disturbed. And so this is a tombstone that's set up, and it's saying that this person uh, followed an unknown God. And so they're doing it out of respect for the dead, because they didn't know who the dead person was and they don't know what God he served. Now, by and large, that comes from a, a, an assumption that we haven't found this altar in our archaeological digs, therefore we don't think this altar exists. My conviction as we look at Luke's gospel and how he has done his work, I have no problem saying this altar exists. I think it's very 
probable, very likely, that this culture that has a view of a variety of gods would want to cover all their bases. And that's basically what this is with this altar. So they have a variety of gods, and they think, well, there may be one god that we leave out. We want to make sure that we cover our bases and make sacrifices to this god. But doesn't it tell us something about humanity? That there's something written on us that we know there is a God, right? We, we know there is a God of order. We, we know that there is a God who is angry with man. We know that something is not at rest in this age, and there is a God who needs to be appeased. It's, it's instinctive. It's something that's written within us, as the Apostle Paul says. Now, people will say, well, there's atheists who deny there's a God. I say yes, but don't they also believe that there's a justice system, there's right and wrong? How do they account for that? Somebody would say, well, what about the nihilist who says there's nothing, it's up to us to order creation? What did they just say? Order their creation. In other words, in their mindset, they still believe there's an order. There's still some sort of a right and wrong. There's something that's orderly and something that's disorderly. So the reality is we can't escape the reality that there is a God. And this is what we also learned from the Apostle Paul. That as the Apostle Paul takes his altar and he says, okay, so you guys, I perceive you're pious, basically you're spiritual. So he doesn't have to argue whether or not there is a God or the potential for a God. That's, that's not on the table at this point. Paul's saying, let, let me tell you about the God that you truly serve. Now, it's important to know that as Paul is here, uh, he's upset the Jews, he's upset the Greek thinkers, as we hear in the context of this, that he's interacted in the synagogues, he's interacted with the philosophers. And so basically this Areopagus, uh, it's not really like the thought police, but I guess it kind of is. Basically, it's like a city council that is appointed to maintain order. So what the case is made is that there's a guy running around town, arguing in the synagogue, he's getting the Jews all upset. He's arguing over here with these philosophers, getting these guys all upset. I don't know what this guy's talking about. He's talking about some resurrection stuff. We need to set him down and figure out what's going on. So some argue he's being detained or arrested, which doesn't seem likely because when you get to the end of the text, he just, he just walks away is the implication. Some say, well, we'll hear you again and then Paul leaves. So it means, or the implication is he's invited back to once again address them, and some of the council members follow him and are part of, of his missionary um, endeavors, at least as, as the text implies. But nevertheless, as Paul addresses this group that wants to know, what, what are you talking about? Jews are upset, philosophers are upset. It seems whenever you open your mouth, people are just upset. So why are people so upset with you? So Paul's saying, well, let's, let's talk about this. You say there's an unknown God, and as I've said, I believe this is an altar, an altar in the, in the center of the city, or at least somewhere in the city that uh, offsets any potential God that might be man. But this tells us something else about humanity, doesn't it? That it tells us there's a God beyond our comprehension, a God that we may not know. And so a temptation we can have, like what Calvin cautions us on, this is why I want to read that quote, about just looking at the works of God and then reasoning from those works who God is, that, that the temptation is we can take sticks, you know, or ideas and stick them on a wall and see what sticks and what seems probable, and from what's probable then reason to what may be a God or the true God 
that we're trying to discover. And Paul is saying this is really a problem because we're assuming that there's a God that we just kind of stumble into, right? You kind of figure out probably from some works who this God is, what he may be, what he isn't, and then you, you kind of proceed and, and try and follow him. Paul's saying, actually, I'm the apostle, the one who sent, who can tell you this God. I can say it definitively who this God is. And he's saying, let me preach to you who this God is. And so basically what Paul's doing in the midst of the Areopagus is he's preaching a sermon. He's preaching the gospel. And he's laying out to them the reality of who this God is, our God, the true God of Scripture. And so while they say there's a God you cannot know, Paul's presenting this radical, radical idea that while he's distinct from the creation and he is beyond our comprehension, he's still a God we can know. We can understand this God. He's given us revelation. He's told us his intentions. He's revealed his will. He's revealed his nature to us. All these things he has given to us. That's why it's so important when Paul says, the God, the God you claim not to know, I proclaim to you. And so he's saying this in confidence, in boldness. I know this God. And so you can imagine these philosophically elite individuals who claim to have read all these great writers and all these great poets throughout history, all of a sudden saying, well, who is this man who's going to proclaim that there is one God we are to serve? I mean, in our culture, or I guess growing up in the church, we don't know how radical this is. This is a society that believes in a variety of gods where you have one God who's atop and different gods who are underneath. And so to proclaim there's one God we serve and this God is, is a God who gives us revelation, what, what are you talking about? Notice then how Paul presents us as we move on and we see how Paul actually encourages us uh, by God being incomprehensible. Because again, as we think about the Apostle Paul and what he's saying, is that we can say, well, as mere mortals... If this God is really incomprehensible, why would we want to pursue him? Why would we want to know him? What has he done that is so uh, uh, personal to us? Well, as Paul goes on, he tells us, notice then we look at verse 24. This is a God who has made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. I mean, what a radical declaration there. He's the one who lives beyond this age. He doesn't live in the temple. But we also understand the nature of who the servant of the Lord is. We think of Isaiah 42.5 as this is sort of where Paul's not necessarily quoting scripture throughout this, but he's making references to what we can see in different passages. So we think of Isaiah 42.5 where the Lord is the one who creates this world, gives breath, uh, to everything in it, verse 25. And so it's that reminder that as God has created this world, he's the one who continues to sustain this world. And so when, when we think about God and, and what he has revealed, he is not just a God who is abstracted. 
Uh, he's a God who continues to sustain this creation because he continually gives breath, continually numbers man's days, continually watches over the creatures, which is what the Lord says to Job, that you're not uh, aware of all the little details I take care of in the creation. And so here is that same sort of mindset. Paul's saying, is beyond us incomprehensible, above, majestic, you know, these things sort of overlap. And he's also a God who is in the midst of us. Something radical, something glorious. We go on, we think about what Paul continues to say. We go in verse 25, where he says he's not served by human hands. Nothing is needed. He himself gives everything to mankind, life and breath and everything. So now verse 25 is telling us something else because here these men think they're doing a great job. It's probably a glorious, beautiful altar, garnished in gold potentially. I mean, we, we don't know for sure, but it's, it's probably a, a very honorable altar that they've made. And they think, boy, some God that we don't know would be honored to, to have sacrifices offered on this altar and for us to commemorate him. What a bunch of wonderful people we are. And here Paul is saying, actually, human hands do nothing for him. We, we can't work our way to him. We can't manipulate him. We, we can't lead him around. He's a God who is actually beyond us. A God who is more majestic and more incomprehensible than this reality. And so he's the one who actually, while he's beyond us, notice how Paul points out the reality. He gives to all mankind everything. So he's saying the, the very energy they've had to build this altar is a gift from God. Whether they recognize it or not. As they're trying to search out the God, the irony is God's right there in the midst of them working. Allowing them to live, allowing them to breathe. And yet they don't recognize it. Going on then, we find that the Lord, in verse 26, 27... That he's the one who actually, from one man, the whole creation, or we have all the nations populated. And again, we think of uh, the Tower of Babel, where we have the earthlings trying to rebel against God and the population of the world going out from there, from that event. We have the Lord determining the boundaries of the nations. So the nations may think that they have their different empires and their different emperors and they're so great. But it's recalling for us the history in Genesis and how the Lord is... The one who has actually determined where man is going to be, has determined how long man will live, has determined where man's going to dwell. And, and the irony of all this is as the Lord is doing this, they should seek him out. They should recognize that it's the true God of heaven who is doing this. And as he uses this language of feel their way to him and find him, um, that does get at it, but it's sort of like they, they should seek their way out. They, they should find him. It's... It, it is communicating, and, and what the ESV is trying to bring into the English is sort of a, a blind person. You know, you think of where you get up in the middle of the night, and you're trying not to stub your toe, and you're feeling around, and you're trying to find your way to the bathroom or, or whatever, and you don't want to trip over something, and so you're just sort of feeling your way around, kind of know what you're looking for, but don't really know exactly what might be in the way. That, that's sort of what this is communicating. And so he's saying... As you're trying to stumble your way to God, you, you should really seek out the true God. You should look to him. He's left his signature, as Calvin has said. You can look to the mountains and say, there's a God who's created. 
You look at the, the lakes and you say, there's a God who set the boundaries for this water. There's a God who has done all this. He's left his signature. We should seek out this God and truly find him. And so the Apostle Paul says, actually, ironically, as man seeks and, and goes, man needs to recognize that he's really not that far from us. And so now he actually uh, quotes from a philosopher, uh, Epimenides of uh, Crete, this is 600 BC, and as he uh, writes, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. So this philosopher, Epimenides, has already laid out the reality that there is a God that is out there, that we live and move and have our being. But Paul is saying the Stoic philosophers aren't giving us what we want. Uh, the ancient philosophers didn't fully see him, even though they properly perceived the incomprehensible God, they didn't really seek him out. But he's saying, nevertheless, we hear their word, their own testimony declares that we know there is a God who is out there. He goes on then to cite uh, basically from the hymn of Zeus, where it says, for we are indeed his offspring. So anything about Zeus and the different um, Greek gods where you have Zeus at the top and you have the battles of the gods and you have different individuals who might be offspring of the different gods and may have those godlike characters going on. Paul's actually laying out something about who we are as man in the image of God. Because notice what he says so strongly in verse 29. Being then God's offspring. Think about that statement. We, we are born from God. You say, no, I think of my genealogy, I think of my mother, I think of my father. That's who I'm born from. But Paul's actually inviting us to realize that our life doesn't really come from our parents. Our life comes from God. And so when we think about God giving life, and so this again, God's up there. He's incomprehensible. He does not dwell in temples. He's beyond this world. But God gives life. And as he gives life and continues to give life, it's not life back then, you know, for those people in the Old Testament or those people maybe in New Testament times. He's giving life now, continually giving life. Every time a baby's born, it's a testimony that God's giving life. That's what Paul's saying. We are God's offspring. He's left his signature not only on the creation but within us. We are created in the image of God. We need to understand this reality. And so he's saying, now, think about the rationality of this. Is God, is a God who's able to do this, one who is made of gold or silver? Is gold or silver able to draw the boundaries for society? Can you build a gold statue and set it there and have it all of a sudden build up a nation in its providence or make the sun come up or make the sun set or make the world go round? Oh no, I mean, we're going to have to take that gold statue and we're going to have to polish it and we're going to have to clean it and we're going to have to dust it off and we're going to actually have to protect it. And Paul's saying, isn't that the absurdity of idolatry? That you actually have to protect your God? Isn't that backwards? And so he's saying, how can this gold uh, statue or this idol that we fashion by our own hands really do something? We're protecting it. It's not protecting us. 
And so the Apostle Paul is saying, this is our imagination. This is our creativity. So he's saying, we're coming close. We're, we're seeing God. And then we go, oh, but I don't want to come to grips with the true God of heaven. So we quick turn away and say, oh, I'm going to invent this God. So Paul's saying, well, here's a warning. At that time, God overlooked the times of ignorance. So he's saying the Lord basically allowed man to fall into idolatry, didn't prosecute all the nations. And so it seems he's talking about the uniqueness of Israel going in and out of the land and their engagement in holy war. But he's saying what they pictured. And so again, this is important when people say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he is mean, he is vindictive, he is angry, he is a God who just destroys people. You say, well, actually, we need to think about why God's doing that. God's painting a picture there of what he ultimately wants for his people. He wants them to dwell in his heavenly, holy kingdom. And Canaan was a picture of heaven on earth. And so you can't have immorality in the midst of a heavenly kingdom, can you? And so you have that uniqueness in that time. And that is prosecuting and publishing to the world the international judgment that's coming. And so people say, well, how do I know this is happening? How do I know this will be real? Notice Paul's proof. He says he gives us assurance of that day by raising him from the dead. In other words, referring back to Christ. Now that's a, a radical statement. Because we know, right? And, and again, think about how arrogant we are as human beings. People don't rise from the dead. Somebody gets buried, they stay in the ground. And so you can understand the reaction. We understand a fallen world. When people die, they stay dead. That's the reality of it. Right? And that's the mindset here. But Paul doesn't capitulate to that. He doesn't give in. He says, listen, whether you believe it or not, Christ's been raised from the dead. So the reality is right now, we better encounter him in a way where we bow our knee by faith. And we bow before his throne of grace because this is the way where God has made it known to us his will. Because we have the word of the prophets, we have the incarnate word as we've covered in our means of grace. Christ is the incarnate word, the manifestation of God's promises that have come and have entered into history, fulfilling what the prophets have said. And so Paul is saying that as this one has been raised from the dead, it publishes on the one hand, sin's been dealt with, right? We, we bow our knee before Christ. We know that our sins are taken away. However, if we think this is absurd and we laugh at it, it's not a good ending. Because your knee will bow before Christ. It's just that the final day, it's not a very nice bowing. It's more a recognition and an understanding that he truly is the Lord over heaven and earth. And that's Paul's point. There is a God who dwells outside the temple, beyond our understanding, incomprehensible, but a God who is also so personal and so near that he works in this creation, whether we affirm it or not. Still at work. Again, I, I marvel at that. Why, why does God continue to uphold the world for such an, an ungrateful lot of people? And yet he does. That's what he says to Job. Listen, I, I care. You know, I, I always go back to the ostrich. I care for the ostrich who abandons its young. I raise up that little young. I see to it that that little young ostrich lives and, and has its days numbered. Even though the mother's walked away. You see the care that God has for this world. Beyond this creation. And still the God who works in this creation. And so that's a general way. Specifically... 
As we have Christ, as we take hold of Christ, we know our God. And we reach up into the glories of heaven. Now notice the sermon then, how it's reacted to. I know this is going beyond our verses, but it's interesting. Same day, same messenger, same message, same time of day, right? So it's not that we can say the stars are aligned a certain way. And yet there's two radically different responses. Some say, who is he talking about a resurrection? This is absurd. People don't raise from the dead. This guy's nuts. Get him out of here. Others say, oh, tell us more. This resurrection, tell us about this resurrection. What does that mean? What are the implications of it, Paul? We want to hear more of this, right? And so when, when you understand that, you see how the gospel enlightens and how through the word that's preached we come to know our God. And, and we hear who our God is. And as we respond in faith, we know that we're taking hold of the true and living God. So then in conclusion, when we ask that question, if God is incomprehensible, does that mean he's beyond our ability to know him? That he's beyond us in such a way that maybe we discern some actions from God and then we piece together who he is? Well, no. Paul's point is that God reveals himself. He reveals himself by his providence and his creation. But he also reveals himself in his word. We don't just make deductions and try and figure out, oh, the sun comes up, therefore there must be a God, right? I mean, that's something we can do, but we need to seek him out in what he's revealed to us. It's not just his actions and what he has done. He has revealed to us who he is uh, as he is as God, uh, who he is in his glory, who he is in his majesty, who he is in his holiness. And yet this is a God who is not just beyond this world and beyond us. A God who gives us life, leaves a signature upon us. Every time there is birth, it's testimony that God is giving life and is at work. And so we say, well then, how is it comforting that he's incomprehensible? Well, it's what Paul says about the idol, isn't it? And this is the absurdity of idolatry, and yet we still struggle with it, and we still give in to it, don't we? But we maintain the idol, right? We protect the idol. We protect the God. You know, Jacob and Rachel, Rachel hiding the teraphim underneath her. Oh, we don't have any gods, but what is she doing? She's protecting the God. When we understand a God who is incomprehensible, yes, it is frightening. We're at his mercy. We we're at the whim of his providence. We, we have to trust that what he's leading us to in his providence is good and righteous and holy and is actually going to be for his glory. We, we have to trust that. But we also have to trust what he reveals about himself. He is our shield and defender. And he is a God who goes before us. So when we know he's incomprehensible, it means Satan's not going to win the battle. It means there is no pantheon or variety of gods that are going to overpower him. He is God. He is beyond this age. There is no power that is greater than him, for he is incomprehensible. But yet we can know him. And as we do not know him exhaustively, we can still truly know him. The other thing that's encouraging about this is we can continue to grow in our knowledge and conviction and assurance of his leading and his care. As the Catechism reminds us in terms of the providence of God, paraphrasing it, that you think of the different seasons of life 
And when you meditate back on life, you know, when you're young, you, you, you tend to, or at least it seems, you tend to worry more. But as you go through and you meditate on God's providence, you think, wait a minute. God's led me through this time. I didn't know how I was getting out of that. God led me through that. What about this time in life? God led me through that. What about this individual I've encountered where they, they didn't know how things were going to come together and God led them through that? And you see as you reflect back and, and you grow in this knowledge of God that as he's beyond our comprehension, it means we don't put God in the box. God works as God desires to work. And as we know his nature and his goodness, he works according to his nature according to his goodness, according to his majesty, according to his holiness, according to his righteousness. And we can be assured that as we are in his hand, as we began our worship, we will survey that heavenly city, and it will be a glorious place. And the Lord will lead us through each one of our days that we survey under the sun, and he will not let his hand off us as a great, majestic, incomprehensible, God. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.